Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. Hello, friends, and happy autumn. I am so excited for October. I know that it's sort of well on its way, but I am just feeling the beautiful, cool air, the smell of leaves, the sense of rooting down, down, down into the earth that is the flavor of this season and uh, reconnecting with ideas of ancestry and with ideas of what we can let go and allow to compost and ways that we can allow ourselves to receive ever more than before and in ways that are much more balanced and grounded and um, our gift and are receiving at the same time. I haven't been so visible on the podcast and social media in the last month, you may have noticed, because I injured myself just about a month ago. I have an ankle sprain that's quite serious. So I have spent a lot of time, um, you know, laying down. And I'm taking it as a really beautiful opportunity to really inhabit the sense of rest and groundedness that comes with this season, the rooting down. And I have also been taking the opportunity to do some research into the folklore of rest and leisure and the history of how our understandings of rest, leisure, and receiving have become somewhat twisted and limited in the last number of centuries because of empire, capitalism, colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. So I am super excited about what I am germinating right now in this period of repose. I am super excited to share what's going to come out of this period of transformation that I imagine will last about, you know, two months or so. <laughs> so you'll probably be hearing from me more often again in November, or December times. But for the moment, I really wanted to share this interview that I did just recently with Catherine Fink on her podcast, The Heart is a Cauldron, which is a really beautiful exploration into moons and the season and ancestral ways of being on the land much like Fair Folk Podcast and Fair Folk Almanac aim to do. So I have been friends with her for some time over the internet, and I really admire the work that she does. It's full of integrity and vulnerability and good, solid research, just like everybody who listens to this podcast really appreciates. So I spent about an hour speaking with her recently, and um, she made it into her podcast episode. So I'm sharing that whole episode just as one piece, and I'll visit you again at the end. I think it was a beautiful conversation, and I think that you will get a lot out of it. So here is my interview with Catherine Fink on the Heart is a Cauldron podcast. Welcome to The Heart is a Cauldron, a podcast and Patreon community for personal and collective healing through relationship with the animate world. I'm Catherine Fink, and I'm so grateful, as always, to be on this journey with you. Today, I have a lovely treat for you. Rather than the typical podcast episode I've been releasing this month, I wanted to invite on a dear friend and incredible guest for an interview. Danica Boyce is a folklore researcher, educator, and podcaster. She works to re-enchant everyday life and bring down empire using the perennial universal tools of folklore and mythology. You can check out her offerings of the Fair Folk podcast and her course, Abundance Paganism. A quick technical note that if you hear a sort of shift during the interview, we had a very <laughs> ill-timed uh, interruption of a hedgerow being trimmed, which I find oddly fitting for our conversation, but 
uh, was definitely not um, <laughs> conducive to recording. So you might hear that quick little um, transition, but I do hope you'll enjoy. Let me know what you think. And as always, please share with your friends and on social media, subscribe, leave a review, all those beautiful, beautiful gestures that I appreciate so much and are helping to bring this project to life. Okay, time to sit down with Danica. Welcome, Danica, to The Heart Hello. is a Cauldron. Hi. I'm mm -hmm. so, so excited to have you on today um, just to give folks tuning in a little background that you and I have been friends for a while and you're actually one of the inspirations for, um, you know, what I'm trying to do here with this podcast. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited that we finally get to have this public and formal chat. <laughs> yes. So I would really just love to open up the space for you to offer a prayer or, you know, just words from your heart um, to get us started. May the conversation that we have today be a catalyst for greater and fractal connections between people and spirit and the earth and love. And may the words we choose be explosively powerful for people who need to hear them in this moment and soothing for those who need to feel grounded and safe in themselves and in the world. So may mm. it be. Mm. Thank you so much for that. <sighs> so something I'd love to start with um, I'm personally deeply curious about this question of, you know, what is innate within the human spirit? You know, what are mm. the qualities or truths about our being that we all share? And you have actually spoken to this recently in your own podcast where you said, quote, the most enduring and the most strengthening quality of humankind is not its ability to make tools of domination but rather its capacity for recovery and for joy, end quote. So beautiful. Um, can you tell us more about what these two qualities mean to you, recovery uh, and joy, and why you choose to honor them specifically? I think of time a little differently than, than other people do, um, although I think a lot of pagans and animists and other unusual <laughs> folks would agree with me in that I feel that everything is perennial and that recovery is an innate aspect of all reality. Um, death fertilizes life. So every, every instance of, of pain is also the beginning of a healing. Um, and we're all related in that way. So we receive healing um, sometimes from the pain of others, other beings, other matter. And there's something that I meditate on often <laughs> when we think about, you know, drawing on the knowledge of our ancestors for informing our lives today. I love to meditate on the fact that literally everybody died. <laughs> everybody who has lived has also died. And yet, somehow, here we are, alive, <laughs> and as a, as a result of that. And that's absolutely beautiful and necessary. And therefore, recovery is always available and is always present. It's just a matter of focalizing your gaze on that process of drawing from loss and drawing from the compost of the world to make your reality beautiful and abundant. And so joy, the second word I used in that sentence, that comes when you release this desire to control and you stop fighting against life and what it's offering you constantly. All the joy, all the love, all the pleasure that's available in any moment and ways that you can connect with joy at any time is by asking yourself, what is life offering me right now? What's being presented as an opportunity 
for pleasure and for connection. Thank you for that medicine. Truly so beautiful. And what you just said might possibly relate to this next question that I'm intending to ask everyone who comes on the podcast for interviews. So the vision of the heart is a cauldron is to nurture healing through relationship with the animate world. And I thought as a way of getting to know you a little bit better um, before we continue with the rest of our conversation, um, I just love to learn how you've experienced this healing through relationship with the animate world in your own life. Well, I grew up in a place that, that, um, was pretty, had a low population. I was pretty isolated. I lived in the mountains and I was surrounded by a lot of really big trees and bears and ocean and not a lot of light or company. And I felt absolutely surrounded by presence um, because, I mean, I was in a small valley and there were enormous trees and enormous animals. Um, and I spent a lot of time really focusing closely on the material world. I, I, was, I was not super popular with the other kids because I had such reverence for objects, I guess you could say. And I don't consider them objects now. But, um, and I was reminded of this recently when I did a, an exercise suggested by this, um, this fellow Panache Desai. Um, we did an interview in a podcast episode with, um, I can't remember her name right now, so I have to give you that later. But um, it was an ego exercise offered by this fellow to, to meet your, your ego and to embrace it and to see what's behind it. So your ego is the, the sort of aspect of your psyche that's protecting you from, from danger in a lot of cases. And what was behind this ego figure was this tiny girl, me, as a kid. And I was just focused entirely on an object. And I was just spending hours, um, I don't even know what it was. It might have been a doll or something. But just spending hours being in reverence to that, that thing in that place in that moment. And I realized that um, in our lives, we, we, we uh, try to protect ourselves by not having those experience, experiences of like mystical immersion in the material world. And um, I've been lucky to have developed this podcast where I get to explore that on a really large scale now. Now that I've made a virtue of that <laughs> aspect of myself, I don't feel so much that I need to protect myself from the world when I go into that space. Instead, I'm finding that there's, you know, millions of other people who want to have the same experience of, of reverence for, for here and now and what is. And I especially know that that's true because we all grew up with a treasured object, um, which was not an object, of course, right? It's a being. Um, and that would be our doll or our teddy bear or our, you know, um, Mega Man figurine. Um, we love these objects with with uh, with a real truth because they're alive and they're real. And if we could expand that sense of reality and and allow it to persist into our adult lives, we find ourselves surrounded by presence. Um, and it's a lot harder to be lonely when you're in that kind of state when you allow yourself to be safe there. Yeah, I think so many of us can relate with what you just so beautifully voiced about that, you know, loneliness on one hand, and yet that presence was the word that you chose, I thought, so perfectly, um, that is actually, you know, available to us and calling to us even at all times. Um, and that's actually a really beautiful segue into what I wanted to ask you first, um, which is you've talked about the taming of our spirituality, which just feels so related to what you were just sharing and is certainly something that weighs heavily in my own heart and um, is part of my own mission as well. And I think you've really touched on a wound that many of us experience that suppression or erasure of our ancestral spirituality and earth-centered worldview at the hands of capitalism and colonialism and other oppressive systems. 
And while you, I know, focus on European paganism, this is, of course, sadly true for many, many cultures throughout time and place. So I'd love to hear more about what is your understanding of collective trauma inflicted by empire and what medicine or hope might we turn to for our future? That's an awesome question. And um, I think it is incredibly important and um, simple, well complicated at the same time. I think one of the main things that we experience um, within empire and as a result of empire is disconnection from um, integrity. That is like connection to the innate value in ourselves and in our instincts and in our desires and in our just beingness in the world in flow. Um, Empire tells us that right and wrong are located somewhere outside of us or that wrong may be located inside of us, but that authority is located outside of us. And therefore it's a really effective means of controlling people and um, getting people to all behave in the same way when naturally we're incredibly diverse in our motivations and in our connections to each other and to place and to other beings on the earth. One of the ways that this manifests is um, in a different relationship to time. When we are thinking in empire mentality, we think of time as linear because we have this idea that um, time owes us something, maybe, that we are using time to get toward a specific end goal. And uh, in Christianity, this would be called teleology, that there's a sort of purpose to the world and that it's geared towards this specific ending, which is the, the uh, apocalypse. Um, and I don't believe in the apocalypse myself, but um, when you step outside of that view of linear time, you get into this beautiful um, cyclical understanding of time that involves death and rebirth on unequal footing. Um, and more than that, too, is is um, when you're in this circular time, you're always sort of in place and you're moving forward, but you're not moving away from yourself because yourself and the way that you are is not flawed and you're not, um, you don't need to be fixed. This is real pervasive view in empire that we are uh, broken and we need to be corrected somehow. Um, and the ways that we can heal this disconnect from ourselves and from being in time in more circular and emplaced ways is to reconnect as often as we can with leisure and with rest. And I know that may sound contradictory because we have such critiques of people who are entitled and um, the idea of people being full of themselves if they spend time focusing on, on their needs. But in fact, that's one of the biggest tools of empire is to to uh, trick us into thinking we need to earn our our value or that we need to work to become worthy of rest or pleasure. And um, an interesting fact that I learned recently is that in feudal Europe, um, peasants who were not landowners and we consider were some of like very historically oppressed peoples had more leisure time, um, much more leisure time than we do now in the Western world, in North America specifically, and in Europe as well. I think that's a really valuable thing to be aware of because um, we, we think that we have progressed, you know, past that and that we've become liberated um, when those structures are still very much in place. And um, I want to remind us, though, that at any time we can engage in, in disrupting empire by allowing ourselves time for pleasure, for sex, for um, leisure and rest and um, the belief that we are already enough and that we don't need to earn anything beyond what feels aligned for us. Really, our only job is to be aware of what we want and need and what we love above all and try to be motivated primarily by that positive framework. And this is a super powerful thing that we have access to all the time. We haven't lost that traditional way of being. It's always living inside us. And as soon as we allow ourselves to step into it, we become very much aligned and connected. Um, and more so, the more time we allow ourselves to do so. Hmm, yeah, there's so much in what you just shared. Um, to your point about, first of all, that innate you know, sacredness, enoughness, um, 
wellness that we all carry and that we've been uh, sort of tricked <laughs> away from believing in. Mm. Um, I love the connection that you draw between that and the spiralic nature of time and our lives, um, especially in the context of, you know, folklore and folk practices that you and I are both so interested in, because often I, I feel like there's this question of, are we going backwards in time with this kind of investigation or is the point to kind of move us forward? And, um, how do we reconcile trying to either, um, revive or maintain, um, cultures and traditions with keeping things in a spirit of aliveness and, um, generativeness. And yeah, so I just love what you did there because I feel like it gives us a sort of centered point from which to understand a lived practice um, mm. that feels really spacious. Thank you. I think that is the key is to like understand that the past and the future and the present are all here at once. <laughs> and that um, it's not about trying to move backwards or move forward. It's about trying to incorporate as much complexity and presence into your experience as possible at any time. Because we love those things, the past and the future and the present, and we want them all to be here with us all the time, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that complexity you're talking about, I think, is also present in the other main thread of what I heard from what you shared about um, the deep devotion to rest and our roots in that, you know, that actually that's a returning to rather than something we need to cultivate in this sort of new way. Um, so thank you for sharing that as well. Um, and the complexity that I mean is, is what you touched on around, um, this is something we're so deeply connected to and yet it's been so, um, muddied by the demands mm -hmm. of, you know, capitalism and supremacy, et cetera. I'd like to focus the conversation now more specifically around themes of the harvest, um, since this is such a big and potent topic, not just now at this time of year in the Northern Hemisphere, but frankly, for any time of year. Um, what were the key themes of the harvest folk traditions that you believe reconnect us with a more loving and ethical way of being in the world? Well, um, at the risk of overgeneralizing, um, I have really noticed looking at European folk tradition around the harvest, um, at least that was that was collected in the 19th century, um, and much of it in England and Scotland and Ireland, um, that there was a really big emphasis on um, symbolically sharing the harvest in a number of different ways. There's one tradition that I noticed appears in, in all kinds of um, manifestations of different kinds, but where um, plant life of some kind that's associated with the harvest, sometimes it'll be the first fruits, sometimes it'll be the first sheaf, sometimes it'll be the last sheaf um, of grain, will be processed through and around a town. And in some cases um, will be like walked down every street of the town or perhaps just around the town. Sometimes it'll be, you know, say a young woman set up in a cart um, who's the harvest queen and she has, you know, grain and fruit uh, made into a crown and a costume. Um, and the age of these traditions is always debated, but um, their general quality seems to re be retained throughout history from pagan times into the modern era um, because processions were also a really big part of pagan practice. And so the reason to me that processions are sharing, I'll explain, um, is because paganism and like magic and folk magic and a lot of just um, what we might call superstition in a judgmental way now, but a lot of these more um, simple magical practices that people would engage with on a on a day-to-day -day level are based on um, this this logic of like creates like. So if you take um, the bounty of the harvest, like a beautiful example of it, 
and you spread it all around the village and you take it to all the corners of this of this area, um, you symbolically demonstrate that you intend to share this and that you want the richness and the benefits of this harvest to be spread throughout the whole geographic area and throughout your whole community. And um, this is, you know, an expression of generosity and of gratitude, both, I think, um, wanting to share the harvest. There's so many examples of this that it's actually almost hard to summarize. There's um, that, that Queen of the Harvest piece is from Poland, um, and I'm sure elsewhere it appears too. Um, and in Ireland, at the beginning of the berry season, there's a feast where everybody in the town is supposed to have some measure of the first bits of the harvest. It can be the, the grain harvest and the berry harvest start around the same time. So, um, And it's really important for everyone to have even just a small amount, um, to consume a small amount of this beginning feast. And um, there's also in England... England, there's a harvest home feast at the end of the grain harvest, and it's hosted by the the lord of um, a manor or the landowner who's hired who's hired um, farm workers to come and harvest, and um, they you know lavish they make this lavish feast for everybody, and it's it's supposed to demonstrate their gratitude and also their generosity, and to make sure that everybody feels included in this harvest, that it's not just about somebody grabbing and hoarding a bunch of grain. Um, it's really important in this tradition to demonstrate um, spreading it around. And it's obviously a very deep and old tradition. And there's there must be a lot more to this idea of procession, because it doesn't just appear in the harvest. But um, I think that that's a really beautiful example and one that we can think about imitating in different ways that are, could be really creative and interesting. Hmm. Why is that motif of the procession so specifically evocative for you? Um, you know, for what I mean is that um, in those wonderful examples you gave, I could see that happening without that particular facet of the ceremony. Do you see what I mean? Um, you mean people could be sharing things without processing? Yeah, exactly. So I'm wondering why that element of the tradition do you think is so um, beautiful to you? Hmm. I think because it involves space, perhaps, um, like geographical space. It's a way of engaging with the land as well. It's not just about the human community in this one isolated building. It's about bringing all of the spirits of the land into the process. Um, and in fact, like another aspect of harvest that gets a lot of attention from folklorists is the last sheath traditions, which um, presume that um, in some way, whether it's like animal or spirit or little old lady, that the last bit of grain that's harvested contains the spirit of the grain itself or of that space. And so there is this acknowledgement, I think, innate in procession that the that the land itself is inspirited and is animate and that it um, needs to be communicated with as well and brought into the celebration of itself um, and of what it's given. To humankind. Oh, I love that celebration of itself uh, <laughs> that you you pointed out, and I also really appreciate that. Um, in addition to speaking to the involve the involvement of the land and that that the procession is so physical. Um, I think you know something I deeply love about the harvest traditions is that it is so intrinsically tied to our personal and collective survival in in a very literal physical way um, and so I'm really grateful that you shared the procession with us because it um, it just adds a whole another symbolic layer to that so thank you this brings us to something you've been passionately discussing lately the concept of abundance paganism and I know for many of us, abundance has taken on a tricky connotation, both as a framework and even as a word or how we talk about abundance because of the way abundance has been co-opted or perverted by a wider culture of consumerism and, and white supremacy. 
Um, so can you tell us more about your vision of abundance paganism and how this actively works against empire? Yes, that's such a great question because um, that's something that is, um, yeah, it's amazing we're using, you know, the English language to, to express these things when the English language has been one of the main tools of empire in the last decades and centuries. Um, so, yeah, you'll have to forgive me as I say abundance, and I mean, I mean real abundance when I say it. So abundance paganism is an approach to paganism that privileges love and trust and gratitude and generosity and reverence. These are all qualities that allow us to engage and connect ethically with the world and with responsibility. Um, but the way that we come at them um, needs to be from a place of safety. I think that one of the main tools of capitalism and empire in general is belief in scarcity and the fear that there will not be enough for us and that we ourselves are not enough for the world. And um, when we shift our belief um, on an individual and a collective level um, from scarcity to abundance, to the belief that we are enough and that we can have enough and that we do have enough to share, that there's enough for everybody and it's just, you know, in capitalism, it's a distribution problem. Um, there's more now of like matter and food and um, goods for humans to use for survival than there ever has been. Um, and we are just being convinced that that's not the case. So what I'm doing with abundance paganism is trying to bring this abundance mindset into our spiritual practices. Because as much as we may feel politically progressive or we may um, cultivate good personal practices of thought and of, of like being in our bodies and with ourselves, um, it's very easy to re-inscribe the structures of empire when we approach spirituality because we are so accustomed to spirituality being religion. And religion has been a tool of empire, like a very powerful one. Um, Christianity being a huge example of that. So um, it's very easy for us to think that we are doing paganism wrong because um, of this assumption that there would be one way to do paganism when really what existed before Christianity in Europe, um, and this is just an example of how um, empire replaces indigenous belief. This happens all over the world. But what existed before Christianity in Europe was an extremely diverse collection of beliefs that were based on connection to land and um, adaptation and creativity and cultural exchange. A lot of um, a lot of change and exchange and um, desire for connection and well-being. So. As you can imagine, that would look totally different from place to place and from family to family, and it would change over time. And it would be based on this inner knowing that I was talking about that gets tamed in, um, in empire and capitalism and in religion, um, because that's something we have in common with our, with our ancestors. So we can access that inner knowing at any time when we are in trust and gratitude and generosity and reverence. When we attune to those qualities in ourselves, um, we like, you know, almost it's like we're radios. This is how my friend puts it. <laughs> we're all radios and there are different frequencies that we can attune to. And we, if we tune to the frequency of fear and of scarcity um, when we have a choice, then that is what we broadcast all around us. And that is the quality with which we um, receive information and goods and relationship. But if instead we tune our frequency to abundance, to trust, to generosity and, you know, love and sweetness, that's what we broadcast and that's the quality that we receive with as well. So our relationship to spirituality is so much richer when we remember to come home to ourselves and, um, and our innate trust and goodness. Um, I almost want to like say if we could be like babies, you know, <laughs> 
an analogy I want to to step into often when I'm talking about a month's mindset. Like when you come into the world and you are helpless and you're playful and you have to trust that everything's going to be given to you because you don't have your brain fully built yet. And because our brains are the parts of ourselves that are so programmed by empire, it is often helpful to step outside of the self-protective mind. As long as we keep our our boundaries with us, our you know, our bodies knowing of what's safe and what's not safe, we can um, we can do so much more in expanding our belief of what's possible for us. And we also get this cool effect of stepping outside of time. You know, we get this sense that the past is present because we trust in our inner knowing, which comes from the exact same place as it always has for people, our center and the earth. Mm. There's so much there, and I know you've channeled a lot of this into your latest beautiful offering, Abundance Paganism, as this course that you're running. So what are your hopes for this offering, and what would you like people to know about this? My hope for this offering is that I can help in building a community of people who are practicing and sharing this expansive and loving practice of spirituality and so that we can shift the discourse of paganism away from this idea of correctness and fear and fixed identity and nationality that we see so much especially on the internet um and empower people to come into like a really organic and even like an adaptive and diverse expectation of what's possible for their spiritual life um and I want that to to be fractal too. You know, I, I think, I mean, I know it will be. When ideas, beautiful ideas are shared, they continue to be shared and they equip, you know, millions more people than we can ever see in our own sphere of influence. And that's what I really want to see is, you know, an infectious tidal wave, tidal wave of love-based spiritual practice. That's what I'd like to see from Abundance Paganism. Yeah, and that that um, tidal wave of love, um, as opposed to you know what you pointed out at the start of your answer about how um, a lot of talk about paganism and modern practice can be rooted in fear instead, brings me to one more harvest related question I wanted to offer up. Um, you know, I'm especially intrigued by the practice of offerings in pagan or earth-centered traditions. Um, and you've spoken about the harvest traditions and um, specifically refuting this idea that harvest offerings were made historically out of fear, like this mm. kind of payoff to the gods. That's the narrative I think a lot of us have been led to believe. Um I totally agree with you um, and shared my own take on this in the um, harvest-related Heart as a Culture episode. Could you share with us how you believe we can reframe our relationship with the divine and, in a broader sense, our relationship with the abundance of the living world? I think, um, yeah, I'll talk a little bit about that, the idea of giving from fear versus love. I think that that's a key idea. <laughs> I think we can, at any moment when, we're, when we want to engage with a tradition, we get to choose what quality our relationship to that tradition will be. And, um, and to really simplify it, um, we can check in with ourselves at any time. Are we, are we doing this? Are we engaging from a place of love or from a place of fear? And I'm sure that there were some ancestors who were, who were making offerings out of fear. But I don't expect that that was the general rule. And especially because paganism itself is, is one of the main sort of markers of paganism that early Christian missionaries were so annoyed about was the fact that song and dance are a really big aspect of pagan practice and worship. And they're also offerings. This connects to procession as well, that like, People singing and dancing are usually not doing that out of fear, right? They're, they're doing it out of an overflow of joy and of love. And um, there are formal elements to songs and dances, but they are performances of celebration for the most part. Even when they're mourning, um, they are, they're an outlet for, for the richness of life um, in our bodies and in our spirits. 
And so I think that um, when we give from love and from embodiment and from overflow, we're, we are bringing to life the most rich um, traditions that, that remain for us. And um, our offerings are real offerings. I don't know if an offering under threat is really an offering or if it's um, a payment. And that's not the kind of framework that we have to be in anymore. We are in a place in time where we have greater ability to communicate and to get our needs met than ever before. As much as there are a great deal of people in huge suffering and in very trapped situations, um, there is also this abundance of freedom and choice um, like never before. And so I just really hope that we can, we can offer each other when we have overflow, we can offer each other this, this spacious view and this freedom. Um, and there's so many offerings uh, that are rest-based as well. I want to bring it back to that, that offerings don't always have to be, you know, your favorite animal. <laughs> That's what we usually see is like animal or human sacrifices, how paganism is typically um, depicted. But people also offer rest. Um, one of the one of the main roles of Frau Holla, who's a who's a figure in German folktale, but who we understand goes back um, into a broader goddess tradition. Um, a lot of holidays there would be spinning prohibitions. Women specifically, but I'm sure not just women, but were not supposed to spin. They weren't supposed to do work of any kind on specific holidays. And if they did, they would, you know, get in trouble with, with Frau Halle or Perchte, depending on where you're living, this goddess figure. And it's very easy to forget that rest um, is also an offering, that song is also an offering, that dance, that celebration is an offering. And it is just as, if not more valuable than giving something out of lack or out of concern that there won't be enough. Yeah. And I also, oh, well, there's so much I could circle back to from what you just shared, but to continue on with your theme of, you know, these different types of offerings we can make, I do want to touch on and um, just really highlight this idea of offering to each other and our collective well-being. And I'm glad that you spoke to the widespread systemic, you know, issues that, um, are very real and very problematic for people. And so, um, this idea of responsibility to each other, I think you've really woven into a lot of what you've shared today. Um, what is something you'd like to leave with listeners in terms of one practice they could consider as a way to cultivate a lived sense of abundance? One of my favorite practices for reconnecting with European folk tradition, but which is, I think, a universal practice, is to cultivate a relationship with your household spirit. Because, believe it or not, <laughs> the place that you live has a spirit, if, if not many. And um, it's very easy to engage with this spirit. And um, you can do it either by leaving a food offering once in a while on holidays, some people do it every day, um, find a beautiful space in the house and um, you can set up flowers or a candle or whatever makes a place feel sacred to you. And speak out loud to your household spirit and say, I welcome you to this space. I would like to cultivate a friendship. Um, it's nice to meet you. Here's something for you. I hope you enjoy it. And um, what... Again, I think it's really important to know is that if you don't have a lot to give, um, a song or a prayer or a dance or a smile is also an acceptable and a beautiful offering. But I think that this practice, um, which is widespread in Europe and abroad, um, what I think is especially valuable about it is that so many people in our demographic and probably many of the listeners of this podcast are settlers um, or their ancestors have been settlers in North America from Europe, or they've migrated in some way historically. 
And so we often feel um, alienated and not entitled to the land that we live on. And there's a lot to unpack there. But one of the ways to correct this in your daily life and to bring a sense of reverence and belonging to the place where you live is to cultivate this relationship because partly because it demonstrates that you feel responsible to the land that you that you are a tenant on and um, and that you're grateful for it because we um, we we struggle with deservingness and with receiving those of us who are aware that um, that there that there are historical harms involved in our coming here, um, but we begin to deserve <laughs> and we begin to receive more meaningfully when we engage in a relationship of mutual care and responsibility. Just like any relationship, um, we can cultivate a meaningful and balanced relationship with the land and the spirit of the place where we live. So I love that one, and it pays back <laughs> immediately. It's so cool to, to keep track of, of signs that we receive that, you know, our household spirit is, is there with us and is communicating with us and sometimes even, you know, causing trouble, hiding things. <laughs> um, if you can, if you do begin this practice, it's nice to be in touch with someone else who's doing it as well so that you can compare stories because it's quite incredible what can unfold in your relationship to your own home um, that didn't seem possible before. Yeah, that that theme of mutual care and interconnectedness and responsibility. I love that you grounded that in this, literally in the practice of being in our homes, um, because I think rightly so, we devote a lot of attention to, you know, how are we being in right relationship with our communities? Um, and so, you know, you spoke to um, people who might be white settlers, um, you know, for example, making reparations, understanding whose land this truly belongs to, um, understanding your impact in the local ecosystems, um, so, so essential. And this practice of working with the house spirit seems to me a really wonderful way to invite that into truly how we're approaching even the most mundane aspects of our lives, right? Um, so I just want to thank you for that. Thank you for listening. I know it's um, it's a cute and strange thing, but I love it and I really, really recommend it. Um, and it's good, like, it's a good way to calibrate your attitude and your approach to um, others, anyone who is not, you know, in intimately known to you, so that when you leave your house, you can have the same um, awareness of right relationship in all of your engagements and interactions. Okay, registration, I know, is currently closed for this round of your Abundance Paganism course. So as we, you know, wind down our conversation today, I just want people to know what are the best ways to engage with your beautiful work. Well, um, my main offering to the public is Fair Folk Podcast, and I'm sure you mentioned that at the beginning of the episode, but I'll mention it again. It's a podcast that I've been making for about four years now, and it's available wherever podcasts live, um, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., and I, I post one of those episodes about once a month, sometimes more often. Another thing that's really important to mention, I think, is that I have a mailing list and you can find it on my website, fairfolkcast.com. Um, you can either scroll to the bottom, bottom or a pop-up will appear um, because not everybody wants to engage with social media or with um, even with podcasts all the time. And the mailing list is a really consistent way to stay in touch so that you know you're not going to lose me if the tides of popular culture shift. Um, but I should also mention I'm very active on Instagram and I post there pretty regularly. Um, and that's kind of the catch-all for a lot of what I'm doing. So you might see more casual or... Um, less formal or professional post there if that's the kind of thing you like and that's the way you like to connect so many options um i'd say the primary ones though are fair folk patreon and instagram yeah and the instagram is i'm pretty sure that's how 
you and I met. So I can mm-hmm. give a very mm-hmm. personal <laughs> thumbs up to your Instagram content. So thank you. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, this has been so joyful and wonderful. And I'm just so grateful to you both for, of course, our conversation today, but everything you offer to the world. Thank you so much. It's really incredible to see it um, reflected back to me. Um, It's been, you know, it was a dream for a long time and then it became a reality. And now I see that it really touches people. And that's um, what I want to see other people experience too. So if you have a dream and a strange inkling to, you know, make a folklore podcast or something, I'd really encourage you to take the next step toward that because that's what um, faith and generosity and gratitude gets you is more faith and generosity and gratitude. And we all need more of those things for each other and ourselves. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. I hope that you had a lot of food for thought about the history of leisure and receiving, harvest, sharing. And if you have questions or thoughts about this episode, please send them to me, send them to Catherine, and share the episode because Catherine's work is so valuable and so heartfelt and so expansive and opening that I really think it deserves to gain as much attention, as much awareness as possible. So share it on social media, share it with your friend, whatever, you know, flicks your back. Um, I also want to remind you that because it's October and um, you may be, you know, craving your usual Fair Folk podcast episode, you know, for the seasonal occasions, Halloween coming up, um, you can listen again to the episode that I put out last October. And if you're a new listener, you're in luck because I put in an episode last October all about Samhain Halloween traditions, their connection to the emotional quality of longing and also of the ways that our ancestors show up for us in this holiday, even in the traditions that we celebrate nowadays. So I hope you'll give it a listen. And I also want to remind you that there is a Spotify playlist that I went to go along with that episode. I believe it's the same name, All Hallows, and you can find it under Danica Boyce. I hope you're having a fantastic fall because I absolutely am. And I can't wait to hear from you again and also to share this season with you on this planet (laughs) in the ways that we best know how. And as usual, you can catch up with me on Instagram at danica.boyce, where I post most often, also on Facebook at Fairfolk Podcast. I'm also on Patreon, and right now I'm taking a break to reevaluate what I'm offering to the Patreon subscribers, and there's a really beautiful conversation going on about what people actually want from me, which is a really good thing to know. Um, And I totally welcome you to join and join that conversation and have a say in what's coming up in my evolving relationship to my patrons and the ways that we can show up together. We've been talking about doing more live video calls, maybe... Um, doing sort of like readings together and talking about them in a seminar style video call. There's also talk about, you know, playlists and different ways that I can share resources and music. So join me there if you feel inspired to, and I will talk to you soon.